You're listening to a podcast by New Heights Church. We hope you're encouraged to glorify, grow, and go. At our church, what we do is we preach through books of the Bible, uh, verse by verse. It's called expository preaching. And so we're picking up uh, today where Pastor James left off last week in Genesis chapter 12. And so if you got a Bible, you can open it up or turn it on and go to chapter 12. I got a call um, this weekend from a, a, a number I didn't recognize and Probably shouldn't have answered it because I was with my family, but um, for whatever reason, I, I, I did answer it, and um, and it was a follow up of a of a meeting where I was kind of left ghosted, um, which as a pastor that happens a lot. Most of you have ghosted me at some point. It's fine. I'm not bitter about it. I'm not holding a grudge. It's fine. It comes with the job. I know. But um, but but I tried to meet with this guy, and um, and he he wasn't he, he wasn't responsive. He didn't show up. And um, it was kind of discouraging to me because he was going through some stuff and he was seeking the Lord and wanted to visit the church and hadn't come and I wanted to share the gospel with him and invite him. And, and so I, I get this, this was years back, by the way. I think it was even pre-COVID, which is fuzzy in my memory. But years ago, and, um, and so I answer this call and, and it's him and he's calling me from a recovery center. And he said, hey, remember years ago we were supposed to have lunch and, and I didn't reply to your texts, and I didn't show up. And he's like, I'm, I'm really sorry about that. And I'm like, yeah, it's about time you told me where you were, right? You know? um, and he's like, I'm calling you from a recovery center. Um, I'm checked in in a residential facility, and I want to call you and tell you I'm, I'm getting right with the Lord, and I'm doing what God wants me to do, and I'm going to buy you lunch as soon as I get out of here. And it was just like a really cool phone call, right? It's just unexpected, out of nowhere. And, and I thought about that, and I, you know, this sermon was already written, I had it kind of in my head, and I thought about how, how amazing it is when you get an unexpected call like that, and it's just so clear that the Lord is doing something you could never do, that the Lord is sovereignly working in somebody's life. And, and that's, that's what we're going to look at today. We're going to look at a call of a man named Abram. And as we look at Genesis 12, we're introduced to this man, this patriarch, this father of faith named Abram, and it's his call, his initial call from God. God speaks to him and calls him in a very unexpected circumstance, calls him out of the land that he grew up in, um, false gods that he was worshiping, and calls him into a right relationship with the one true God. Now, Abram, he's called Abraham, so I'll just go ahead and tell you now, I'll probably use those two names interchangeably, Abram and Abraham, um, but this man is, is world-renowned. Um, Jews, Christians, and Muslims all trace um, our origins of our faith to this man. Father Abraham, as he's called, is an important character in the, in, the, in the patriarch story of Scripture. And so um, in this series, Saints and Villains, we're going progressively through these characters. Uh, we started with Adam and then Noah, and now we're moving into the third installment, which is Abraham. And so I have three points that I want to show you in Genesis chapter 12, first of which is the presence of a covenant. I want you to see that God initiates a relationship with Abraham just as he initiates a relationship with each of us. Secondly, the presence of altars will show us, um, will show us how, how God expects us to respond to him. Once he makes promises and covenant and relationship with us, we respond in worship. And thirdly, the presence of sin. Ever present in our lives, we'll see ever present in Abram's life. Um, it's a story of commonality in all humanity. Um, let's look at the, pre the presence of covenant first. Now, God, again, God initiates this call. It's unexpected on Abram's part. Um, he initiates this covenant, the Abrahamic covenant, as it's called, through sovereign election. God chooses Abram for no other reason than God's 
purpose of his will. Um, Abram's not doing anything to get God's attention. You almost see a little bit of that in like Noah's story because the whole world's wicked and depraved and like Noah's worshiping God and Noah's walking with God and Noah's doing the right things. Abram's the complete opposite. Abram has nothing that makes God be like, hmm, this guy could be really cool on my team. I want to pick him. Um, it's, it's quite the opposite, actually. Abram is not in a position of worshiping God. He's not in a position where he's even acknowledging um, the true God's existence. Verse 1 tells us, though, that the Lord speaks to him. It says, The Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. It's a pretty simple command that God gives to Abram. Um, now, I need you to understand from Abram's point of view who he thought was speaking to him. Um, Abram was, was a polytheist. He worshipped many gods, believed in many gods. And so even if he believed in deity of the God that was speaking to him, he would have believed in Yahweh as being one of many. Okay, And, and so he's going to react and, and have a, begin a relationship with God, and it's going to develop into uh, the gospel. But, but we need to understand what is his country, what is his kindred, who is his family or his father's house, that, that when God speaks to him, that he's calling him to walk away from. We get some context in Genesis 11, chapter, chapter 11, verse 31 says, Terah, which is Abram's dad, Terah took Abram, his son, and Lot, the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai, his daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife, and they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. This gives us some context of where Abram's from, where he grew up. He grew up in the land of Ur, the city of Ur. This is in modern-day Iraq, and Ur was a center of pagan worship in ancient times. Um, and, and, and some of us might think, well, Abram lived there, but maybe he didn't participate in everything. Well, the Bible actually clears that up in Joshua 24, verse 2. Joshua says to all the people, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah, the father of Abraham and of Nahor, and they served other gods. Now, I need us to understand where Abram's coming from so we can understand what great sins he calls us out of as well. There's a great ziggurat in Ur, uh, which is like a pyramid-like structure. I actually have a picture of it. Uh, this is, as it's seen modern day, it's, it's still standing. You can go and visit this. This was built around 2100 B.C., um, which is around the time frame that Terah would have lived in the city of Ur. Um, matter of fact, uh, with, with this architectural feat, it's not crazy to think that Abraham's dad actually worked on building this center of worship. This pyramid-like structure was a center of worship for a false god named Nana. Now, that's not your grandma. This is like a, a dangerous false god. Um, this is an ancient Mesopotamian moon god, and this ziggurat was built as a place of worship for this false deity. Now, uh, Terah probably would have been around during the building of this. Abram would have grown up going to a place like this and worshiping a false god. This is how he grew up. And yet God calls him out of this background to be the father of a nation that will bless all nations. In Genesis 12, verse 2, God says to Abram, I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. Notice what God is initiating in this covenant, this, this promise that he's making. It's all blessing. He's not saying, if you will give this up or if you'll do this. He's, it's not even conditional. He just says, this is what I'm going to do. And here's what you are to do in response to that. The word covenant means promise or pledge. And so God is making a pledge to Abram based on God's goodness alone, not Abraham's. 
And, and, and God's promises, we need to understand this. This, is, this. this applies to us as well, that God's promises to us are not predicated on our worthiness. And that's good news for us because, let me clue you in, none of you are worthy of God's good blessings and promises. Abram is found by God, worshiping false God, and God speaks to him and commands that he respond. He tells him what to do. Most of us tend to view our salvation as an invitational, don't we? Like when you get a wedding invite and it's in that scripty font and it's super, there's like four envelopes for some reason. I'll never understand why y'all do that, ladies, but there's a lot of envelopes and it's like you're cordially invited to this. RSVP, you know, fill this form out or somebody invites you to something on Facebook. It's like the antithesis of the fancy wedding invite. It's like you get a Facebook invite and y'all don't even have the wherewithal to check going or not going. You just ignore it. I know how you are because you're depraved people. Some of you are crazy enough to just say interested, like that doesn't tell the host anything. Um, And most of us, if we're honest, at least at some point in our life, if not now, we tend to view our salvation that way. Like Jesus stretched out his arms to die on a cross to cordially invite us into his kingdom. And some of us are like, yeah, interested, maybe, right? When Jesus dies for our sins, he is, he is choosing us to be adopted into his family, and to come into that family is a command. It's not like a cordial invitation. It's more like getting called for jury duty. Like, it's just something you got to do, and, and it demands a response, and it's not a, it's not a begrudging response from those who are saved. It's more of, man, my eyes have been opened. How could I not follow after this king and love in a, in a life that's responsive and gratitude? And so God doesn't invite Abram. It's not an altar call. It's marching orders to Abram. Here's what you're going to do. Leave this place and go into this new place, and I'll make of you a great nation. I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing. It's got tons of benefits with it. And the call on our life is the same. It's marching orders, and and to repent is a command to us, but it comes with so many benefits. The Christian life is filled with the blessings of God. It's also filled with suffering and hardship. But God has called us to lift our eyes to eternity where he will wipe away all pain and give us eternal bliss. Now, in in the book of Romans, we get a theological explanation of Abram's salvation. Um, I'm going to repeat this as, as long as we go through the book of Genesis. The best commentator on the Old Testament is the Holy Spirit in the New Testament. So if anything's unclear on what it means, let's see what God has to say about it in the New Testament. Um, And in Romans, God uh, inspires Paul to write down theological explanation of Abram's salvation, and he brings up circumcision. Now, circumcision is a sign of the Abrahamic covenant. God gives uh, promises to Abraham. Later in Genesis, he's going to institute the rite of circumcision. And if you want to talk more about circumcision, Pastor Jeremy would be really happy to grab lunch with y'all and talk about circumcision all day. He's happy to do that. Um, he's the circumcision discussion pastor at our church. Not me. Um, <laughs> but it's a little weird, right, how much circumcision's mentioned in the Bible. Uh, the reason it's mentioned, though, is because God makes a promise of offspring to Abraham. And so with a promise of, of many offspring, God marks his reproductive organ and all his sons after him so that they would be reminded that God was fulfilling his promise to fill the earth with his descendants. Now, um, when Abraham is obedient to God, what, what Paul makes the case of theologically in Romans is that's not what made him righteous. That's not what got him to heaven. That's not what brought salvation to him. Matter of fact, salvation was given to Abraham before he ever acted in obedience. 
Uh, Paul writes about it in chapter 4 of Romans. He says, Is this blessing then only for the circumcised, or also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised, so that righteousness would be counted to them as well, and to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised, but also who walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. I know I just said circumcised a whole lot. Let me summarize that for you. The New Testament compares circumcision in the Old Covenant to baptism in the New Covenant. Are you saved before or after your baptism? baptized before. God has regenerated your heart and made you alive, spiritually speaking. Baptism is a sign of obedience after you've been made alive. Paul makes the case that circumcision is the same way. It was Abraham's response to a promise God had already secured. And so God says to the chosen, I will bless you because I choose to, not because you're great, not because you're worthy, but because I am great and because I am worthy. Because he receives glory, he chooses and redeems and blesses his children. Now, Abram's righteousness wasn't because of his obedience. Paul, in in chapter 4, verse 3 of Romans, actually quotes Genesis. He says, what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. It wasn't because he moved. It wasn't because he got circumcised. He was righteous because he believed God. He took God at his word. That's how salvation comes to us. And it's the same with you. Ask yourself the same question. What came first in your life? Salvation or obedience? I think many of us may be tempted to say, oh, obedience. I got in church. I started reading my Bible. I started praying. I realized I was messing up. But that's where the answer lies. You realized you were messing up. You realized your sin. And and if you look at, at testimonies of everyone in this room, our conversion stories, what you'll see is salvation comes when we realize how sinful we are. When we realize we've offended a holy God, then salvation comes and our eyes are open. Then righteous living begins. That actually anything before salvation that we try to do that's righteous is futile. It's it's fleeting, it's not lasting. We can't stick to it because we don't have the spirit to do so. But when we follow after righteousness, we, as Galatians 3, 7 says, are sons of Abraham. It says, know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. Um, I, I grew up singing about covenantalism and not even realizing it. We sang Father Abraham had many sons and many sons have Father Abraham. I am one of them and so are you. So let's just praise the Lord. Remember that song? And you stick your tongue out and spin around. It wasn't even a Pentecostal church I grew up in and we did that. And and, and I didn't even, I couldn't grasp that I was a son of Abraham because I had faith like Abraham. I was like, I'm not Jewish, but this is a, this is a, a bop. This song is pretty cool. Um, and we'd always sing hymns about Canaan's land, right? Like, uh, to Canaan's land, I'm on my way where the soul of man never dies. I'm like, man, I can't afford to go to Israel. What are we singing about, right? Uh, well, it's, it's because the promise is then, is then broadened in God's scope to the elect all over the world. Not just to Abraham and those ethnically Jewish, but anyone who follows in the footsteps of Abraham, which means faith, not works. When we live by faith. Now, how do we know Abraham had faith? Well, he believed God's first word to him that he was going to make of him a nation. The problem with this promise was Abraham didn't have no kids. Genesis 11.30 says, Sarai, his wife, was barren. She had no child. 
Nevertheless, we'll see 25 years of God patiently walking with Abram and promising that offspring would come to him. Abram had to believe God and be patient and walk through hardship and struggles and be tested and even fail a lot before finally the son of promise Isaac would be brought into his family. And it didn't come quickly or easily, but God still continues to make promises to this man struggling to believe. Verse 3, he tells Abram, I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. God would eventually change Abram's name from Abram to Abraham. Abram means father of a nation. Abraham means father of many nations. God is foreshadowing and telling us that he's going to make a great nation of Abram and use that nation to draw all nations of the world into his eternal nation, whose king is Jesus Christ, God's son. So now Abram is tasked with a response. He believes God, but now needs to come sanctification and obedience. The promise has already been made by God, but now a response is needed by Abram. Verse 4 tells us his response. It says, So Abram went, as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. Now as a response to the covenant promise, what Abram does is he walks away from everything he had ever known. He leaves familiarity, probably leaves comfort and pleasure. He leaves his family and friends. He leaves livelihood, maybe work that he had. But more importantly, he leaves behind paganism, idol worship, sin, rebellion. And this morning I want to ask you, what has God called you out of? What has God called you and said, walk away from that mess and walk toward my promise for you, which is so much better? You see, believing God's promises without moving toward them is not an option for you. God has so much more prepared for you than for you to, to like cognitively believe in the resurrection but not physically live in what he's planned for your life. You see, some things just don't belong together, like oil and water, and sometimes we we just think our disobedience and our worship can coexist, and they can't. You can't properly worship in sinful disobedience. And I'm not saying that, that when God calls us, we become perfect. I think New Heights Church is an easy example of that. <laughs> I tell people when they first come to this church, like, we're messed up, and we're going to let you down, I promise. You have not found a perfect church, and we're not perfect people. And disobedience will visit our souls, but it can't live there. If we're children of God, disobedience cannot live permanently in our souls. You cannot be a permanent home for both disobedience and belief. God has simply promised us too much for us to remain in the land of the Chaldeans. He's called us to something better. And so let me call you to this in the second point, to recognize the presence of altars. What I mean by this is the presence of worship in our life, that we, that we respond to who God is and what he's done for us by saving us that we would accurately respond in our life. I always define worship as a right response to who God truly is. And if we understand who God truly is, then we should rightly respond. That means that because we believe, we gather together. Because we believe, we give financially. Because we believe, we sacrifice. Because we believe, we serve. We help others. Because we believe, we go on mission. Because we believe, we, we do all these things in acts of worship, not just singing songs and checking off our Sunday boxes. I want you to see how Abram worships after he sets out on this journey. Verse 5 says, Abram took Sarai's wife and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered and the people they had acquired in Haran, and they set out to go to the land of Canaan. And when they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land 
to the place at Shechem, to the oak of Morah. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. I need you to remember that. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. I'm, I'm going to the beach in, in a week, and um, I remember doing that dad thing when I was like a new dad. We had two young kids, and I was like, we're going to beat all the traffic because dads just have to beat all the traffic. And I was like, we're going to leave in the middle of the night, and we'll drive as far as we can. We'll get real close to the beach, and then we'll stop like two to three hours out from the beach. And, and I, you know, this was like the internet was young. And, um, and so we do that, and I thought I had a good plan until I realized every other dad had the same plan, and all the hotels were full. And so I get, I kid you not, like 30 minutes from the coast, and the only place to stay is this place called the Economy Inn. I'm like, oh, good, it'll be cheap. And the hotel room looked like a, a, a Saw movie, like the setting of a, it's like the guy at the front desk is like, I want to play a game, you know. And, um, and so, like, we go in, and I'm telling Amanda, like, it's fine, we'll sleep for a while, and then we'll go to the beach, you know, in the morning. And, and it was just, you know, you walk in, and, and Amanda's just like, this is not what I was expecting when you said we'll get a place on the way to the beach, right? It was like sleep on top of the comforter kind of level, right? Um, Amanda, Amanda was like, she's like, I'm just going to sleep on an air mattress, right? We had an air mattress, so she did that. Um, and, and so... This is kind of like when, maybe what Sarah experienced when, the, when the, he's like, hey, God promised us all this land. Like, we got like a farm waiting for us. Like, let's go. They pack up and they go and they get there and the Canaanites are living there. And, you know, Sarah's like over at the side, like, Abram, did he really say he's getting And then the Lord clarifies, like, to your offspring, I'll give this land. And so Abram doesn't just get the good life here. He doesn't just get it easy. He comes into the land of Canaan, and he lives the rest of his life as a nomad. He doesn't build a, a permanent dwelling. He doesn't build a home. He doesn't like permanently live there. Um, now, the promise does get fulfilled to his children, but we're going to see Abram dwell in tents and continue to be nomadic and move. And he goes to this place called Shechem. And it says at Shechem, the Lord appeared to him. This is what, what theologians call a theophany, an appearing of God. Um, and, and we worship a triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Bible makes it clear that the Father and the Holy Spirit are non-physical. Um, Jesus is the image or the, the, the part of God that's able to be seen. Colossians 1.15 says Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. And so Jesus in his deity, I believe Jesus actually appears to Abram here. Jesus appears and, he, and, he's, and he's like, here it is. And, and at his appearing, Abram understands that he is visiting with God and he builds an altar here. He builds a, a memorial and a place of worship and, and it's important that we understand what happens at Shechem as he builds this altar. Because, because Abram didn't see God until he went to where God wanted him to be. And most of us want to see God move in our lives, right? I don't think Jesus is going to appear to you physically. Um, but most of us want to see God's work in our lives. We want to see God impact our lives and the people around us and things like that. But many of us are, are not walking in obedience while trying to see God move. That Abram didn't get to see God until he walked and journeyed and went to the place where God had for him. You see, maybe you haven't seen God in your life because you haven't gone where he's called you. And Abram here in obedience goes, and when he goes to Shechem in the land of Canaan, the land that would be given to his offspring, he sees Jesus. 
and he builds an altar. Hebrew is mezbaic. The Hebrew word mezbaic literally means a place of slaughter, a place of death. We've romanticized the word altar, and it sounds sweet, like somewhere you, you get married. I mean, that's probably not something I should preach at a, the next wedding I do, like come up to the altar as a, a husband and a wife, and this is the place of death, right? Um, the Latin word means high or heights, like a lifted up place. We've spiritualized altars, and they've become steps at the front of a church sanctuary, a place to get low and bow and pray. But really, what, what altars were designed to be were, were a place for a sacrifice to be lifted up. And altars still should be reminders of a covenant, and they still should be a place of death where we die to ourselves and live in Christ. And, and, and God has signs for his covenants. With Adam, he gave him clothing. With Noah, he gave him the rainbow. With, with uh, Abram, he would give him circumcision and also an altar and a place of sacrifice. Worship, prayer, and praise was made here and in other places throughout Israel. We see it in verses 8 and 9. He continues to build altars. From there, he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and I on the east, where he built an altar. There he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed on, still going toward the Negev, which is the southern region of the desert. Um, I think it's to be assumed, by the way Moses writes this, that Abram continued to build altars. We, uh, we sing that hymn at our church, Come Thou Fount. And there's a, there's a verse in that hymn that says, Here I raise my Ebenezer. And I know you guys don't know what that means. I, thank you for singing it anyways. You just think it's about Christmas carol or whatever. Here I raise my Ebenezer. Um, maybe a lot of you know what it means, but it's, a, it's an allusion to when Samuel and the armies of Israel uh, won a military victory. And, they, and Samuel said, we're going we're gonna to set here an Ebenezer. In Hebrew, it means a stone of help. What it was was a memorial to remind the people of Israel that God had helped them, that God had saved them. And here, as as Abram is setting up these Ebenezers, these places of prayer and sacrifice and worship. He is placing throughout the land that God has promised places of worship and reminders of the covenant. And, and it's, something, it's actually poetically beautiful that he is living in a tent. He's like Ozark Trail, Walmart camping gear, just like traveling around through the land of Canaan, but he's building permanent places of worship. He's living nomadically, but... Worship is being set up permanently. And we ought to live that same way. We ought, to, we ought to have everything in an open hand. If God takes our house, if God takes our family, if God takes our jobs, if he takes our livelihood, God can take everything because everything is ultimately his, but our worship will not go away. It should be permanent. Matter of fact, worship continued in this very land where Abram built these altars, and thousands of years later, about 2,000 years to be exact, Jesus would come to the same place where he appeared to Abram. I thought this was just so neat, and I worshiped Jesus as I was studying about it. He would meet a woman at the same place where he met Abram, and he would have a conversation with her about worship. It's a place called Sychar um, in John chapter 4, where he meets a Samaritan woman at a well, specifically Jacob's well. She mentions that the well is Jacob's well and that her fathers worshipped in that place. Um, you can reference back to the book of Genesis and see that Genesis actually records that this well and the land uh, surrounding it was purchased for Jacob by a, from a man named Shechem, the namesake of the place where Jesus appeared to Abram. And so naturally, the descendants would want to worship on that same mountain. She says it to him in 
John 4.20, the woman at the well says to Jesus, Our fathers worshipped on this mountain. But you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. The Jews had built the temple in the city of peace, Jerusalem, south of there. And matter of fact, they were pretty uh, racist and, and against the Samaritans because they had intermarried with the nations around them. And Jesus clarifies to her something beautiful. He says to her in verse 21, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. What Jesus is communicating is that he'd already been there. Worship had happened there. He had been to Jerusalem. Worship had happened there. And he is saying that, that worship does not center and predicate on the place as much as the person. That, that it was never so much about the location as it was about what God was doing in the lives of his people. And so we're called to set up altars in our own lives. And it's not just us having a nicer, newer building down the street, by the way. That we're called to set up reminders and Ebenezer's in our life that point us back to the fact that we have blessing and we have covenant and promise and we have salvation because God has graciously given it to us based on his will for free. One of my most common altars is the steering wheel in my truck where I'm just by myself and alone with Jesus and reminded of his grace or, or, or falling on my face in repentance to cry out for forgiveness or the, the lock screen on my iPhone that I change every day to a different member of my family as I lift them up in prayer, that we ought to be building altars, reminders all throughout our lives so we worship all the time, not just when we gather in this garage. So that as you go, you are reminded to worship. You see, that same hymn, Come Thou Found, also cries out, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. And because we're prone to wander and be nomadic and walk away from the good grace of God, we need to walk into an altar we've set up. Amen? And so after Abram's great obedience, guess what? He's prone to wander. Shocker, right? He blows it. He screws up. We see a pattern of depravity throughout all of these saints in Genesis. That's why we call it saints and villains. They're villains as well. They're sinners and they're depraved just like we are. The presence of sin is my final sermon point. And when, what happens when we go our own direction and destinations instead of God's will for our lives is it always leads us to sin. Genesis 12.10 tells us the circumstances of this scenario that we're going to read about in the second half of this chapter. There was a famine in the land, so Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there. For the famine was severe in the land. I think there's some foreshadowing of the whole book of Exodus here. Famine leads them to Egypt and leads them into dire circumstances. Now, this is, we'd look at this, and, and maybe this isn't necessarily sinful. There's famine. It's understandable that he's, you know, they're not able to grow the crops they need to survive. But there's definitely a lack of trust on Abram's part. Um, God's not pleased with what Abram does here. And he had journeyed a long way from Ur to Haran to Shechem and then nomadically gone all the way through the nation of Israel, what would be the nation of Israel, the land of Canaan. And here he goes from the pagan land he grew up in in the east to another pagan land in the west, Egypt. Verse 11 says, when he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you're a woman, beautiful in appearance. And when the Egyptians see you, they'll say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Say you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. Now, notice his selfish language here. He says, say you're my sister, not so it'll go well for you. He says, so it will go well for me. Now, some of us might be, be tempted to be like, this doesn't seem all that bad. Maybe his intentions are pure. But listen, his plan goes south, and Abram ultimately fails to stand up for his bride 
In verse 14, it says, When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. And when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh, and the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And for her sake, he dealt with Abram, and he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. And so taken into Pharaoh's house presumably means for the king of Egypt to have sexual relations with Sarai, Abram's wife. Now, uh, What's interesting here is Sarah's uh, 65 to 70 years old here, and some, some skeptics and critics of the Bible actually say there's no way that Pharaoh would take this woman at that advanced age. But listen, I saw Martha Stewart on the internet this week. I kept scrolling, I promise, but I saw it. She's 81, and um, we'll just leave that sermon point what it is, okay? But Sarah was a beautiful woman. Pharaoh brings her into his palace. It's actually deeply sad what Abram does. Let's another man take his wife. Abram's unwise and sinful in multiple ways. He protects himself by not revealing who he is as Pharaoh takes, takes his wife away. Abram subjects his wife to sexual assault by allowing her to be taken. He then reaps the benefit of this deception by receiving uh, favor and care from the Egyptians. And Abram just seems to be thinking, this isn't so bad down here, away from the famine, maybe away from my wife. He's just kind of chilling. But God's not pleased with Abram's solution to his own problem, and we do the same stuff. Maybe not let our wives get taken away, but we will sacrifice a great deal of good and holy things that God has blessed us with so that we can fix our own problems. When circumstances unravel and fall apart, we don't want to go to God or go to his church. We want to try to fix it on our own. We don't want anyone to know about it. We'll hide it. God wants us to be with him, not to run off to something else. Verse 17 says, the Lord afflicted Pharaoh. He's going to bail him out. The Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, what is this that you've done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? And why did you say she's my sister so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here's your wife. Take her and go. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. Again, I think this is foreshadowing of the Exodus. You have an angry king of Egypt with plagues sent by God, and he sends God's uh, children out of Egypt. But what are we to make of this as New Testament Christians? Can, um, can we apply this somehow? Well, here's some ways I think we can apply it. First of all, we can relate, right? God's elect can make some serious mistakes when we walk away from the place of promise. When we walk away from God's will in our lives, we walk right into a lack of wisdom and a lack of clarity and judgment, and most often sin. Um, God's wrathful plagues graciously bring Abram back to where he should have been all along, which is the land of promise. And, and we kind of follow this same pattern, right? It, the pattern of today's sermon, three points, God's covenant, his, the altars to worship him, and then the sin of Abram. When, when we find ourselves going through that same thing, God saved us, we're worshipers of him, but then we find ourselves kind of at the bottom of the barrel, rock bottom, where we've sinned and we've blown it. What God calls us to do is just turn around and go back. The word repent literally means to turn around. Turn around from Egypt and the sin that you've walked into and go back through the sermon outline. Walk away from your sin and back to the altars, the reminders of God's grace, and ultimately back to the fact that you're not saved because you're good enough. You're saved because God made a sovereign promise to save you. Because Jesus stretched out his hands to die in your place. 
Your sins have been paid for. The sins you'll commit next week have already been paid for by Jesus on the cross 2,000 years ago. And from Abram would, even though he messed up, would come this ethnic nation of Israel and ultimately the Messiah, Jesus himself. And 2,000 years later, they would screw up again. And the whole nation of Israel would begin to hope in their ethnicity, in their race, rather than their God. In essence, they begin to put their faith in Abraham rather than in God. Jesus preached to the Pharisees in John 8, 32. He says, you'll know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And they don't like the truth that Jesus preached. He talked about grafting in Gentiles and other nations. They didn't like that. They answered him, we're offspring of Abraham. We've never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? They also answer him in verse 39, Abraham is our father. You see, they thought their hope of eternity was just rooted in the fact that they were descendants of Abraham. Jesus said to them, if you're Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. Jesus makes it clear that the, the, the sons and daughters of Abraham are those who are people of faith, not a certain ethnicity. There is no Jew or Greek. And Jesus says this beautiful truth to them in John eight fifty six. He says, your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. I have to think Jesus has Shechem in mind when he talks about seeing Abraham. Jesus here in his 30s is talking to these old uh, rabbis who had studied about Abraham's life, and they respond, uh, they, they say, you're not yet 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? In verse 58, Jesus says to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. What I love about this is Jesus doesn't make grammatical sense, so it makes me feel better about my, my grammar. <laughs> he doesn't say, before Abraham was, I was too. He says, before Abraham was, I am. Present tense. Was, is, will be to come. I am. By the way, when Moses meets God and he says, who shall I tell the Egyptians sent me? Uh, God says to him, you tell them I am that I am sends you. And Jesus here uses the name of God and he says, before Abraham was, I am. And the Jews knew well what he was claiming to be. He was claiming to be God because verse 59 says they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. You see, Jesus was before Abraham, over Abraham, and is the savior of Abraham and he is the hero of the story. And so we don't hope in a nation. We don't hope in our works. We don't hope in our abilities. We hope in Jesus alone and what he accomplished on the cross for our sake. And he's represented on an altar this morning. We have three tables in this room that we're going to invite you to with a representation of Jesus Christ. Remember what altar is, a place of slaughter. Jesus was killed on a cross. He was lifted up in the, in the perfect altar of Calvary on a cross. And he was killed to pay for the penalty of your sins. Jesus was treated like you should be for the things you've done against God. You see that? And you are treated as Jesus should have been. That's what happened at the altar of the cross. This place of slaughter is represented at these tables with bread representing his torn flesh and juice representing his spilt blood. And so this morning we come to these altars and we don't lift up our works to God. We don't puff out our chest and say, look how good we are or how faithful we've been. Rather, we lift up our God. We lift up the great I am. We lift up Jesus Christ and we thank him for his sacrifice.
We hope you enjoyed the podcast. To learn more about New Heights Church or a relationship with Christ, please visit our website at www.newheightswv.com.